Good morning, church family. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. If you're here and you're, you've got biological children or you're here and you have spiritual children in the Lord, we want you to know that you are loved and appreciated and we're just so thankful for the influence that you have on our lives. One of the ways that we want to celebrate the ladies in our lives today is out in the foyer we have these bookmarks at the Welcome Center. And on these bookmarks on one side are ways that ladies, you can be praying over yourselves and over other women in your life. But then for us men, on the, on the flip side, there are ways that we can be praying for the ladies who are in our lives. And so uh, these bookmarks are for everyone, so we would encourage you to grab one um, and to have it with you, maybe use it to keep track of where you're at in your Bible study, but it can be a consistent reminder to just be praying for the, the ladies that the Lord has allowed to be in your life. We know that it's a high and a holy calling uh, to be a mom and to influence others, and so we're so thankful for those ladies in our church and for the men that are here today, can we join together in just giving a, a thanks to the moms on three? You ready? One, two, three. Thank you, ladies. Yeah, there we go. Well, if you're new here, welcome. My name is Nick Lees, and I serve as a senior pastor. And today, we're going to be continuing our series through the letter of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to be in chapter 8 today. So at this time, I'm going to have our ushers come forward with the Bibles. And if you need a Bible to use this morning, just throw your hand in the air, and they'll gladly give you one to use. But go ahead and turn there to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 8, that's page 819 in the Bible that's being handed out right now. You know, as we've been talking about glorifying God this year, today we're continuing that discussion, uh, specifically looking at the topic of how do I glorify God by loving others well. But the way that we're going to talk about how to love others well is going to be a bit unique to what Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Because again, he's got a specific set of circumstances he's addressing. He's got a certain set of concerns that the Corinthians have brought up. And so we're going to be talking through, well, how does that play into what we're talking about? What, what are we taking from this? And so if you were here last week, you heard that we wrapped up a conversation on how do men and women relate to one another? And there were a whole lot of circumstances that we worked through over the last couple of weeks, but today we're moving into a new topic. And so Paul's going to uh, broach a new topic for the next three chapters of the letter. And so rather than spoiling the surprise, let's just turn there now and see what Paul writes. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Now concerning food offered to idols. Let's just pause there for a second. Not really what you think about when you hear that the sermon is going to be about glorifying God by loving others, right? Food offered to idols. How does this fit together? Well, this is going to be kind of the opening phrase that Paul uses to introduce the new topic. The topic that he's going to spend the next several chapters on of what does it look like to handle this issue, and specifically in chapter 8, he's going to be talking about, does the way that you handle food offered to idols influence the way that you relate to one another as Christians? Does it influence the way that you relate to God? And in this case for them, does it influence the way that they interact with the Apostle Paul? So let's keep reading now. What does Paul write? He says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, we, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. 
But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not become somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, that's probably not a topic that you've spent a whole lot of time thinking about this week, right? Food offered to idols, not an issue you normally come into contact with in our day-to-day life here in America. But there are truths in this teaching that we need to glean. There are principles in how he addresses the church at Corinth that apply to us today. You might even notice a few of them in verses 7 through 13. Right? He, he talks about that the Corinthians are abusing their rights in such a way that it causes others to stumble. And the ultimate result is the destruction of a brother in Christ. Well, that ought to grab your attention, right? That it's possible to use your freedoms, it's possible to use your rights in such a way that it would cause the destruction of another believer. That's a big deal. Right after that, it says you're sinning against your brother and against Christ if you live this way. Again, that ought to grab your attention, right? That's not how we want to live. I hope that's not how we want to live anyways, if we say we follow Christ. So what do we need to know and what do we need to do in order to not lead to the destruction of others and to not sin against our Savior and Lord? Well, during our time together, here's what I hope to unpack. Three components to loving others well. And the first is this. Make love the basis for your behavior, Make love the basis for your behavior. And this is based on the first three verses that we read. And Paul, in these verses, rebukes the Corinthians for preferring knowledge over love. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. Paul wrote, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul starts off this section by sharing one of their quotes. We all possess knowledge. That's what they claimed. We're going to come back to why that was said, but let's just talk about why that quote is a problem. If you've been with us through the study of Corinthians, you know that this is a struggle that they've had throughout the letter. That they are believing in their own press clippings. That they think they are something. That they have arrived And so they boast and they brag about how much they know and about the wisdom that they've gained. Paul says in this chapter, this knowledge puffs up, meaning it makes you proud. It makes, makes you arrogant. You think you know it all. But he says, if you imagine that you know something, you don't have true knowledge. Because you're boasting in what you do know, that really shows how little you know. And so Paul's rebuking them for their for their bragging and their pride. And I've said this before, and I want to say it again. That's not a problem that's unique to the Corinthian church. Right? As Christians today, we struggle with pride. It's easy for us to, to puff ourselves up in what we think we know, or even talking about our, our rights and our freedoms and how we can live. And I want to give you an example from modern church history. 
about the use of alcohol. Right? If you've studied scriptures, then you know that scripture gives some clear commands on how to handle this topic. You're not to be drunk, and you only use it in moderation. However, if you live based on knowledge rather than love, you might be a brother or sister who just operates in a way that's unloving to those around you. You may not understand that you have a brother or sister in your midst who has struggled with sinful use of alcohol in the past. You may have a brother or sister around you who believes or is convicted that they can't have alcohol, that it is indeed sin. And if so, if you're walking around puffed up on knowledge, you say, well, I have the freedom. The Bible doesn't say that I can't do this. But all the while, you're causing your brother or your sister to stumble. You're leading them into temptation. It's unloving. And so Paul's saying love for others has to inform your behavior. You have to love them. Don't set them up to struggle. Don't set them up to fail. But there's an assumption that I believe underlies that. You have to know your brothers. You have to know your sisters well enough to know what builds them up and what will tear them down. And so something for you to be thinking about this morning is how well do you know the people sitting around you? Your family, the church family, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know them well enough to know what kind of things would encourage them and uplift them? And do you know enough about them to know what things would cause them to be tempted or to stumble? That's your homework, right? I mean, to the degree that you don't know the answer to those things, that's your homework. Do you like getting homework on Sundays when you come here, right? Get to know one another. Build into each other's lives with the goal of seeking to encourage each other and exhort each other. And also to listen well so that when people share their life story with you, you're like, okay, now I know that about this person and I will be careful not to do anything that would cause them to stumble in that way. That's part of what it looks like to build the, com the compelling community that we say that we're all about. Right, that's one of the six pillars of our church, having compelling community, and it comes from Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that's the call. Would people look at us and know that we love each other by the way that we conduct ourselves? Do we know each other well enough to encourage and to build one another up, and also not to do things that will tear one another down? And this uh, use of alcohol is just one of many scenarios that could come up in our modern day and age. A couple other topics that I'll just kind of touch on today. Um, what about the stretching that's associated with yoga, right? Is that, is that harmless stretching or is that pagan worship? There are some different views on that in the church and how you conduct yourself matters in that area. Or what about the issue of clothing and modesty? Again, you have the freedom to wear a lot of things. But is it what's loving? Is that what will build up your brother or your sister in Christ? Those are the things that we need to be wrestling with. Or how about these? How about music or movies? Again, do you only listen to Christian lyrics or do you listen to secular music? Are you free to be able to watch a movie like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings? Or do you need to restrain those freedoms? Those are the things that we're talking about. Those are the kind of issues that we're wrestling with. What do you do when you interact with people who have different views on those topics within the church. Do you love them? Or do you live in a way that causes them to stumble and tempts them to sin? Very often, we act in a very unloving way. We're in a society and in a day and age where it says, well, I'm going to do what I want. I'll live how, how I want, whatever pleases me. And so now we're talking about love of self rather than love of others. 
here, Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. He's contrasting the two. Why does he do that? Why does he say that love builds up in comparison to knowledge puffing up? I believe it's because love is to be the foundation of our lives as Christians. That's to be the thing that we build off of in all other ways, right? It's not about all that you know, although that's important, but it's about how much you love God and love others. I want to point out Jesus' own teachings on on this in the Gospel of Matthew. And as he's interacting with the Pharisees, listen to how Jesus instructs them. It says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great, greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Right, do you hear that? All the law and the prophets is founded on the love of God and love of others. That's what our foundation is as Christians. And so as you think through your life and your behavior, are you allowing your love of God and your love of others to dictate what you, what you say and what you do, how you live? As you think through these issues of alcohol, the stretches in yoga, clothing, music, movies, whatever it may be, is the grid that you evaluate them through, is this loving God or loving others? What would love God in this situation? What would love my brother or my sister in this situation? That's the grid we're called to, to evaluate those choices through. Not, what do I want? What, what would serve me? And if the answer that you come to the conclusion of is, well, I know that this would not serve them, this would not be loving to them, then guess what? Put it off. Don't pursue it. Restrain that in your life. Paul goes on to make a very interesting statement in verse 3. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Why does Paul kind of shift gears here? Why does he start talking about God in this matter? What, what, what is he emphasizing? He's seeking to emphasize what truly matters. It's not your knowledge, but your love of God, and ultimately God's knowledge of you. See, God knew you perfectly, and he pursued you, and he rescued you. Even in spite of your weaknesses and your sin and your rebellion, he chose to pursue you. He first loved you. He decided to call you to be a part of his family. And so if you are here and you love God, that's because he first loved you and he first chose you. We did not choose God, he chose us. And that's an amazing reminder of the extravagant love of God, that he would pursue rebels like you and me, that he would make us his own. That's a gospel reminder. It's an opportunity for us to stop and be in awe and say, thank you, Lord, for loving me. In spite of my weaknesses, in spite of my sin, pursuing me and rescuing and redeeming me. And how you respond to that as you think through that says a lot about where you're at with the Lord. Are you in awe that God would love you that much, that he would pursue you and rescue you and redeem you? Are you in awe that he sent his only son to die for you so that you could be saved, so that you could be a part of his family, part of the family of God? That's ultimately what brings him the most glory, and it's for your good. God has shown extravagant love, grace, and mercy to you and to me. Thank you, Jesus. So this morning, are you responding to that? Have you trusted in Christ 
for salvation. He's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Are you here and are you rejoicing in the great salvation that you have received? Right? Do you live each day in worship of God? Or do you live each day here on this earth in worship of self? Right? Those are the two options. We're either living for God or we're living for ourselves. Which one is describing your life? The basis of our behavior here is to be love. Love of God and love of others. Not love of self. That's what we're called to as Christians. But guess what? We can't do it. Not on our own. Not on our own strength. We need him to empower us to do it. And he has. He's given us new life. And if you're here and you don't have that, if you're here and you're saying, well, I don't understand. What is this all about? Let's talk after the service. I'd love to share that with you. There is the hope of new life and the ability to follow him. If you're here and you're a Christian, are you thankful for God's daily sustaining grace in your life? That he not only loved you and pursued you, but he day by day gives you the grace that you need to love him and to pursue him. I want to encourage you this morning to respond to God with worship, to respond to God with, thank you, Lord, for rescuing and redeeming me. Well, as we heard here in verse 1, the Corinthians had this quote, this claim, all of us possess knowledge. Right? And by that, they mean, look, everyone understands idols aren't real, so therefore the food sacrificed to them is not a big deal. We can eat it. It's not a problem. That was you know, the, the way we used to live, but we have the freedom now in Christ to, to eat this and to live however we want. And we know that that's the issue because that's what Paul introduces as the issue, and that's how he interacts with them in the next couple of verses. And I think it's helpful to know a little bit more about Corinth as we, as we dig into this. Now, Corinth was a city that was known for its idol worship. I mean, they had a pantheon of gods in Greek culture. And so, in their city, it would have been a regular occurrence to have a feast at one of the pagan temples. That would have been a weekly occurrence, right? To have a feast in the temple of Zeus or the temple of Isis or you name one of the Greek gods. And, well, that would have been a predicament for these new Christians, right? They had been rescued by Christ. They'd been brought out of this way of living. And yet they still have family. They still have friends, they still have neighbors who are going to these feasts, and they're probably inviting them. Hey, we're having a feast today in the temple of Zeus. Why don't you join us? Uh-oh. What are they supposed to do now? Is that okay or is it not okay? And if you think about even some of those who would have been in the uh, poorer socioeconomic group, those feasts might have been the only opportunity they had to have meat. So what are they supposed to do? I mean, that, they may have been counting on those meals in the past, and what we see is that at least some in the church in Corinth are arguing, well, we have the freedom to go. We believe that idols aren't real. This meat that's sacrificed to them is not a big deal. Let's just keep going to these feasts and enjoying them. Well, how does Paul respond? Let's look again at verses 4 through 6. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what we see here is Paul's agreeing, yeah, idols aren't real. There's no God but one, right? That's what he's affirming here. 
But he also points out your pagan neighbors don't believe that. In verse 5, he says, they believe in these so-called gods. They have many gods and many lords. So how should a Christian interact with someone that has that kind of belief system? Right? What is permissible? How do our beliefs affect the decisions that we make? And in verse 6, he says some key Christian beliefs. There's a confession of faith here. And the implication is that those beliefs have to direct how we live. That they ought to change the way that we think and act around others. And that leads us to our second component of loving others well. To allow truth to direct your life. Allow truth to direct your life. Right? In verse 6, Paul affirms a core Christian belief. There are not many gods. There are not many lords. In fact, there is only one God and one Lord. God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. They are one and the same in God. It's the core truth of Christianity, monotheism. One God with three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here we see God the Father and God the Son being brought up. And Paul, in his confession, provides some key truths about God the Father and God the Son that should change the way that we live. It should change the way that we function. And so let's look at each one in order. First, he talks about God the Father being the source of all things. All things come from him. Nothing in this universe has its origin in anything other than God. He made you and he made me. And not only is he the source of all things, but Paul then narrows the focus to say, for whom we exist. We, right? Paul and the Corinthians, but also you and me. We exist for God. He made us for him. And that would have been a stark contrast to what the Corinthians previously believed. Right? Instead of many gods, there's one God who is the creator and the source of all things, for whom we exist, and our job is to live for him. He has complete power and complete authority over all things. And as the source of all things, then guess what? That means for you and for me. He gets to define how we live. He gets to dictate our identity. Who are we and why we exist? God is the one who answers those questions. And I want to show you how even in the Old Testament, they were wrestling with these things. Consider this passage from the prophet Isaiah. He affirms this very truth. In Isaiah 64, verse 8, he writes, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Think about that. The implications of that verse and that truth. Right Again, if God is the source of all things, if he's the one who's made each of us, then who gets to say what's right or wrong in your life? God does, right? It's not you, it's not me. We are not the arbitrator of truth. God is. How popular of a message is that in our day and age? Not at all, right? And I guarantee you back in Corinth, that wouldn't have been a popular message either, right? It's, I can do whatever I want. It's all about my rights, my freedoms. No one's gonna tell me how to live. But knowledge just puffs up. It puffs up rather than builds up. And I wanna point out a rebuke from God Along these very same lines, this is also from the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 45, verse 9. This is God speaking through the prophet. God says this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? 
right? God is not okay with his creation rebelling against him. God is not okay with us saying, God, why did you make me this way? Or who are you to say how I should live? That doesn't please the Lord. That's rebellion against him. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament and the story of Israel, you know that when they act and think and live this way in rebellion against God, it doesn't go well for them. God loves them too much to let them continue down that path, and he disciplines them. And so what's a better response? How about King David's response in Psalm 139? Listen to how David responds to God. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. King David is aware that God is his creator, and his response is, God, I praise you. You have made me, and it's beautiful the way that you've made me, and I thank you for being my creator. And if you know the story of King David's life, for the most part, he was a man who lived in obedience to God and who lived a life of worship of his king. And God used David for his glory, and he used David for the good of many. That's the kind of person that we want to be, men and women after God's own heart. And as you think through Paul's confession here in verse 6, it's an opportunity for you to decide, do I believe the same? Do I agree with this confession of faith? And I would suppose that most here today would say, yeah, of course I do. I believe there's one God. I believe that there's God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, does that stay up here as head knowledge and just intellectual assent, or does it change you? Has it influenced the way that you live out your faith day by day? Are you living in obedience to God the Father? Are you living in a way that says, God, may your will be done in my life, not mine? That's the test of whether we truly live what we say we believe. And if you're here and you get bent out of shape when God's word confronts you, that's, that's a good indicator that you've got some areas in your life that you're not living this way, that you're not allowing truth to direct how you live. Instead, you are still saying, well, I want to choose. I want to decide how I live. And what's sad to see is there are many people who profess to follow Christ, but they have no interest in allowing this to be the, the standard for how they live. They have no interest in allowing God to call the shots in their life, to be putting off sin, to be restraining their freedoms for the good of others. And I think a good example of this, although it's a touchy one, is modesty. You know, there have been a lot of harsh teachings on this topic throughout the history of the church, so I understand that. But that doesn't change the truth of the matter of we're called to love one another. We're called to build one another up. And so brothers and sisters in Christ need to be thinking through, does the way that I dress and present myself and communicate and interact with others protect them and build them up? And it's not about one party being more at fault than the other. Each person is responsible for seeking to love their brother or sister in Christ in this area. And each party is responsible for their sin if it's present. The goal should be to protect, to build up, to love. And that's just one example of how that might play out. I think another example would be when the word confronts you on something that's more clear-cut even, like the issue of addiction. And so when you came to know Christ... Perhaps there was something in your life that you were addicted to, like smoking or drinking or pornography or maybe the approval of others. How do you respond when God's word confronts you on those things and calls you out of enslavement? 
says a lot about where you're at. You are not to be addicted to anything. You must allow the truth of God's word to direct your life. That's what we're talking about. And these are the kinds of principles that Paul's ultimately confronting the Corinthians on. That their head knowledge, the things that they believed, would lead to life change. It would affect their behavior. And right now, their behavior is in a way that's contradictory to what glorifies God. So Paul loves them enough to call them out on it. Well, the second part of this confession in verse 6 is that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lord who creates and who sustains us. So what we're hearing is that God the Father, through the Son, made all things. And not only is Jesus Christ the one through whom you're made, but he's also the one who sustains you. And so just think about this for a moment. You're sitting here in this room. Are you consciously thinking about keeping your heart beating? Are you thinking about making that next breath come in and out of your lungs? No, you're not. Who's causing those things to happen in your life? Christ is. He continues to sustain you. Perhaps a sillier example, when you walked out, got out of bed this morning, were you fearful that the principles of gravity would no longer be in effect and that you were just going to kind of float away? No. You didn't spend a moment thinking about that or fearing that. Why not? Because you know the God of the universe, the one who sustains all things and who keeps it operating the way that he's created it. But how often do we ever think about that? Probably not often, right? We just take those things for granted. Just go about our daily life. Yep, my heart's beating, my lungs are breathing, gravity's still here, we're good. But Jesus is the one who sustains those things. We have a big God. We need to have a big view of our God. Consider the teachings of Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. He writes, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So there's that piece. Now listen to this last verse. He, he being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Did you hear that? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus speaks and you exist. That's amazing. Or he continues to sustain us day by day. No one else does that. And so the question again is, how does knowing that, how does believing that change the way that you live today? When you walk out of these doors after the service, what will be different about you because you know the God of all creation, the one who knows you intimately and who loves you and who sustains you? Will you live differently? Paul's about to give the Corinthians some very real ways that it ought to change their life. So let's go back now and read verses 7 through 13. Here's what he writes. However, not all possess this knowledge. Now, if you're following, I know we've read this in chunks here, but that's a little different than what we heard in verse 1, right? The quote from the Corinthians was, we all possess knowledge. And now Paul's saying, no, 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 no. We do not all possess this knowledge. We need to slow down here. Let's think about this. So he keeps writing. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as though really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, 
Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In this last little segment that we're reading here, we find our third principle uh, for loving others well, and it's this, put aside your rights to love your brother. Put aside your rights to love your brother. See, Paul says, not everyone has this knowledge that you claim to have. There's actually two groups within the church of what we're seeing here. Those who are the strong, they have strong consciences, and those who are weak, they have weak consciences. And both these groups have been rescued out of their former way of living, Right, they've been rescued by Jesus Christ, they're made new in Christ, but they struggle with their response to the culture and the idol worship they were rescued out of. Those who are considered the strong were able to see it for what it is. Okay, this is not real, idols are not real, meat offered to idols has no real like, effect to it, we can still eat this meat and it's not a big deal because we're not participating in idol worship. But there were others in their presence, the weak, who because of what they had been rescued out of, because they used to worship idols, and because they used to go to these feasts and eat the meat and worship to those idols, they could not reconcile that with their new identity with Christ. For them to go back to this and to sit in those temples and to eat that meat would have been like they were going back to their idolatry. For them, this was not a freedom. It would have been like being defiled, going back to idol worship, and that's not okay. And we can begin to piece the argument together between those who were strong in the Corinthian church and Paul through the ways that Paul writes in verses 8 and 9. Paul agrees, food itself does not change your standing with God. But he does say there are real dangers when you demand your rights, when you demand your freedoms. Just because you have a freedom or a right to do something doesn't mean it is the best or even most loving thing to do. In fact, it can have tremendous consequences. He points out a few of them in verses 10 and 11. He says, if anyone who sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And by your knowledge, you hear that? Your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Paul's making it very personal. It's their choice and by their actions that now there are serious consequences for a brother or sister in Christ. They have become a stumbling block that is so serious that Paul says it results in the brother's destruction. Well, what does that mean? I think Scripture is very clear that once a person is in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. So I don't believe that Paul's talking about a loss of salvation here. Instead, it would appear to mean something akin to being ruined. By your exercising your rights and your freedom, you've led your brother or your sister back into temptation. You've led them back to a place where they're likely to be re-enslaved to sin. And that's a big deal. That has tremendous consequences. And Paul says in verse 12 that in that case, you are now guilty of sin against your brother and against Christ. So you've sinned against another believer and you've sinned against your Lord. Again, those are serious consequences. These, this teaching has to be taken very seriously. If you're going to glorify God by loving others, then you have to put aside your rights in order to love your brothers and sisters well. This is actually very much in line with what Paul's going to write in chapter 10. 
You know, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, but I've, you know, the theme verse for this series is 1 Corinthians 10.31, and here's what he says. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We've heard that a few times over this series. Listen to what he says after that in the next two verses. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You see, the call is to glorify God in all things, even eating and drinking, which is what the Corinthians are struggling with. How do we handle food offered to idols? And the Christian life is based on love for others, not love for self. That's what Paul's calling them to. If it's a stumbling block for your brothers or sisters to see you eating this food, then don't do it. Restrain that freedom. Restrain that liberty. So our goal as Christians is to put aside our rights to love others. If they're a believer, we want to encourage them in the faith. We want to not give them a reason to stumble in the faith. And if they're not believers, then the goal is to have an opportunity to love them by sharing the gospel with them. Right? That is the most loving thing that we can do is present the gospel to them. So we don't want to set up a stumbling block to the gospel. So let's think about this. Think about some of the examples we threw around earlier. You may know someone who has a different conviction than you about alcohol or about how Participating in those stretches in yoga are sinful. What should you do in those cases? Stop talking about it with them. Perhaps stop promoting it on social media because you know that they're going to be seeing it. Maybe you even need to go so far as to just not do it altogether. Right? To restrain that liberty just right out of your life. The same could be said for modesty and the media consumption that you participate in or any other freedom or liberty issue. Because at the end of the day, the love for a sister or the love of a brother has to be the foundation for what we do and how we live. It's not about knowledge, it's about love. And that actually goes for people on both sides of the spectrum. So whether you're in the camp that's the strong, who would say, well, we have the freedom to do this. Or whether you're in the camp that's weak and say, no, 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 you can't do that. To go back to that is sin. Either way, you're called to love your brothers and sisters. You're not to be demanding, hey, you over there, live my way. Or, hey, you over there, live my way. That's not love. We're called to die and restrain our liberties and restrain our freedoms to serve one another. Now, I want to make sure we're clear. On things where the Bible speaks clearly, the Bible is our standard of truth, right? And that's what we live by. So what we've been addressing today are issues where the Bible is not quite as clear or there's a lot of opinions that aren't substantiated in Scripture, but anywhere that we see a clear biblical warrant, we want to live by God's Word. And so we actually see this come up in chapter 10 a little bit later. Paul comes back to this issue again, and this time he's going to say, actually, you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols at all, because when you do that, you're participating in demon worship, and Christians can't have anything to do with demon worship. So in chapter 8, he's focused on the relationship piece of it and on loving your brother's or your sisters, but two chapters later, he's just going to nip the issue in the bud altogether and say, you can't do this. There's a clear biblical mandate against it because it's demon worship. And I love Paul, I said this last week, because he doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. And we see it here in verse 13. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, then I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So he's ready, not only to call the Corinthians to live this way, he says, I'm, I'm living this way too. And so he's going to restrain his freedoms, he's going to restrain his liberties for the good of others, to love them well. 
And as we study chapter 9 and chapter 10, you're going to see that come up in a few, a few different ways. He's going to give restraint, even if it means that he can't do things that he formerly would have done. So again, the question you have to ask yourself is, is that my attitude? Is that how you operate? Or do you walk around saying, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't do it, so I'm going to. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. When's the last time that you restrained some freedoms for the love of a brother or sister in Christ? And if you're thinking, well, what in the world would that look like? Again, it comes back to knowing what causes a brother or sister to stumble. You have to know them well enough to know how to love them and not cause that. So I think the example with alcohol is a really easy one to use. If you have a brother or sister in Christ who you know struggles with that, or they believe and have the conviction that that's sinful, then don't talk about it around them. Don't participate in it around them, right? I mean, just love them well. Restrain that freedom well. For the Corinthians, they were called specifically to stop going to the temples and eating the meat sacrificed to idols because going to those meals caused others to stumble. They were leading brothers and sisters in Christ astray. And Paul says it's far better to go through life with restrictions on your freedoms and to see your brothers and sisters built up and edified in the faith than to walk around saying, well, I have the freedom to do this, but all the while leaving a wake of destruction in your brothers' and sisters' lives. That's what we're called to today, right? If we're going to live as a compelling community, let's care for each other, let's serve each other, let's build one another up rather than causing each other to stumble and be torn down. We're going to need a lot of wisdom on how to live this out. And so let's pray and let's ask God to give us that wisdom. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the word. We thank you for every part of the word, even the ones that confront us on things that maybe are hard to hear. And Lord, some of these issues are are sensitive in our day and age, just as I'm sure they were sensitive back in the Corinthian culture. You're calling us to be countercultural, to live differently than the world around us, and that's not always easy for us. We just pray, Lord, that we would cry out to you for help, that our greatest desire would be to love you first with all of our being, and then to love others. That's what needs to be the foundation for our life. And so would you help that to be the way that we function? Would you help us to allow your word direct our lives? And Lord, may we be willing to put aside our rights in order to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we say it's not about me, it's about you. And Lord, uh, if there are people here today who are struggling with that, I pray that you would, in this moment, help them, that you would encourage them, that you would comfort them with your spirit. Lord, if there are people who are confused about anything that was taught, I pray that they would be willing to come and talk after the service, that we might be able to clear things up. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us as Christians a passion for knowing and obeying you. Thank you for making us. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to represent you here on this earth. Help us to walk out of here living passionately for you this week. We pray these things in Christ's name.